Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Rob Usher is an accomplished knowledge leader and analytics driver with extensive experience in global professional service firms serving Fortune 500 and U.S. federal government clients. Working for clients in defense, space, and big four accounting, he has built and led global knowledge project teams tackling complex requirements, applying technologies, team skills, and analytics to develop and deploy solutions. Rob is a relationship manager bringing an engineering mindset to understanding a community's unique knowledge management needs from multiple levels and then translating it into plans, products, and actions. Hi, my name is Rob Usher. I'm in Mentor, Ohio, which is here in sunny Cleveland. Sunny today, but a lot of times we have a lot of clouds. And I work in KM had for the last 23 years in the big four. And my favorite book is the Foundation Series by Asimov, which if I think about it, is really a lot about knowledge management. I am rereading that series now because I think they're going to come out with a, a movie or a series. I think reading about it, this is all about knowledge management one way or another. Other than that, outside knowledge management, I really like to follow the space program. I'm an aerospace engineer by trade, by original training. And I did some really cool consulting down in D.C. for the first eight or nine years of my life, which I really enjoyed. But now I'm up here in sunny Cleveland, as I say, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, just so everyone knows, when he says sunny Cleveland, he's being funny. That That's being funny. Okay. You mentioned the big four. Can you explain what the big four is? Big four accounting firms, uh, the ones that are sort of left, I guess, as things have attrition done after Arthur Anderson and... Uh, Mm-hmm. Things that have happened over the year. But uh, yeah, EY in particular is where I've spent most of my career with knowledge management. So Ernst & Young, now branded as EY. Mm-hmm. But each of them have a different approach to knowledge management, as I understand it. It's a, you know it's an efficiency play for them and a way to um, increase sales and improve service delivery and uh, for the company. In that respect, you're talking about knowledge management being an internal function of EY, not as a sales product or something they're adding to the menu items for clients. That's exactly right. Yeah. Developing communities amongst, uh, so EY right now is about 300,000 people globally. And so developing communities amongst those global practitioners, having them share internally uh, yep, for the benefit of the, mm-hmm. the service. Yep. So what's been the most exciting KM project? I assume it has something to do with NASA, but what, what is the most exciting thing that you can just sit around the fire just reliving? <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the early on communities that I developed was really very fun. It was around uh, cyber security. And when I first uh, started at, at EY, we had these roles called uh, network coordinators or really basically knowledge managers. And it was our job to go out and sort of evangelize knowledge management to the, to the internal field. So you'd walk into a partner's office, it's kind of like I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you really had to sort of tell them what the, the advantages were for knowledge management and really sort of change the culture because, you know, people are, are a lot more adept to just uh, keeping their own stuff to themselves. You know, why would I want to share stuff? Sure. So, the, the crew that I put together there for this cybersecurity group, and it was about 
three or 4,000 people globally. And uh, I didn't know anything about cybersecurity. Right. I mean, there wasn't, you know, my shtick. I, you know, these guys knew much more than I did. But, you know, you're there to help them connect with themselves and connect with the content that's available from, from themselves yeah. being you know, around the world. We put together a really nice knowledge champion network from about 45 different countries. And uh, we had, you know, biweekly calls and some friendly yeah. competitions amongst them, uh, you know, who could share the most. And mm. it's just trying to get the practitioners to, to spend time on knowledge management versus service delivery, which is always sort of a balance between them. That's accounts payable, right? You're, you're making bank with right, that part. Right, right. So that leads me to wonder who at the top or who at the corporate level said, we need to do this. Who, who made that happen at Ernst & Young? Yeah, you know, that happened really early on. My, I joined in 98, uh, which is a while back, but they had uh, they created something called the Center for Business Knowledge, a CBK. It was a, you know, rather innovative at the time um, amongst the uh, accounting firms. Uh, it really was a leap of faith, you know, at that point. So, you know, it, you know some lead partners and global partners that really sort of bought into the efficiency play and the, yeah. the logic of knowledge management and funded it. And it continues to this day. So it's, it's, it's quite large, actually, now. It's over 700 people globally. Wow. But, uh, you know, they say the firm is 300,000. Um, so, and it does a lot of knowledge management and it does a lot of research and, uh, you know, the combined. I think basically when they started out, you're actually combining various libraries that existed around the world. Oh, sure. Uh, right. So libraries. Because you would have had a very dispersed resource you got pockets of expertise all over the place and how do you bring that all together to an actual usable resource yeah that's exactly that's right. not easy that is not easy does any of this ever spill over to your clients to say hey why why are you guys not doing km or, or do you see different clients that employ km at all there's been a couple of starts and stops for KM as an advisory service within Ernst & Young over time. And, you know, I'm not sure where that stands right now in advisory consulting has, has been growing rapidly over the last few years. But I think it more comes around not such an integrated KM offering, but a little bit more around technology and just sharing from a technology standpoint. So the cultural part of it, less so. Mm -hmm. For at least the clients for Ernst & Young, which are you know, yeah. usually rather large Fortune yeah. 500s. So. How much of the function of knowledge management lies on HR, if any? And by that, I mean, is HR responsible for building out those knowledge sharing, knowledge management characteristics, behaviors you want to see in people? Is that part of it? Or does your core center of people that do knowledge management, are they doing all the heavy lifting? Mostly the latter. So the, the core people that are doing the heavy lifting. But, the, you know, the interesting thing, you know, you bring up is when you always want to try and tie knowledge sharing activities to a performance you know, expectation, if you will. So, um, you know, we've done several things in the past of, you know, just querying people as to how or if their you know, performance reviews or performance expectations include a knowledge sharing component. That's sort of the, the, the golden ring of trying to get that in there to, to have people incentivized. The, the drive really from an Ernst & Young perspective is, is through what's called EY Knowledge now, it's the formal organization. So trying to tie it to performance is a key thing or trying to tie it to service delivery expectations so you can't close out an engagement, for example, until you submit 
documents X, Y, and Z, another sort of uh-huh. you know, golden ring to, to be able to achieve if you can within certain service lines or subservice lines to have that expectation set by leadership uh, or by you know regulation to actually try and do that. That makes it a lot easier to harvest content and feed the machine, right? Right. If it's mandatory, it's like, yeah, yeah that, that definitely is a behavior modifier. I'm curious to know that the idea of this behavior modification or organizational behavior of a culture of sharing, of knowledge management, is it part of the onboarding process? I yeah. mean, is this really a heavy upfront, hey, this is what we do, we do, this is how we operate? Yeah, it is part of the onboarding process um, formally, and there's uh, some formal trainings for knowledge sharing and the expectations set. As you can imagine, though, as you're joining a firm, uh, any firm, but you know, a firm size of Ernst Young, there's a lot thrown at you in your onboarding process. So it really does come down to the follow through, um, and you know, sort of those expectations of your performance reviews, or you know, your immediate sort of manager or your team, um, as far as how that culture gets embedded or act upon. And I would have to say, you know, these days it's a lot different with people coming into the workforce, just I think naturally share a lot more. When I first started back with the EY in 98, you know, the culture was a lot more old school. Right. Um, so people, yes. people got to their positions based upon what they knew and what they had. And it was a culture yeah. change for, for those people, but the, the newer folks, not so much. So I wonder, just as you were saying that, I've seen that myself, and I come from an army culture that was trying to adopt knowledge management in the mid-2000s, and here again, similar to that, it's like, oh, we're going to do this now, but there was a lot of old pushback built Mm -hmm. into the system that didn't want to do that. My question is this, do you see a difference, and I hate to put it in an age group, but let's just say... Is it a social media influence that has changed that sharing behavior? I, I would have to assume yes, but what's your take on that? What's changed in the landscape of humanity and technology to make certain people just become a natural source of sharing information? Yeah, I would absolutely you know point it to the you know social media and just the internet in general. I mean, when you can go out and grab and Google became a verb, um, you know, you can grab information from anywhere. It becomes just more met, you know, natural part of your being. And if you grow up with that, you're more, you're more naturally inclined to do that. You expect that behavior to be yeah, everywhere, yeah. not just in the civilian or off the clock, but on the clock. Right. And that's probably mostly in the getting part, right? So the sharing part, you know, might need some that that carrot and stick pushing or incentive to still share your best practices or share the materials. So to to feed the machine, as I say. Well, one final question, Rob. What's your definition of knowledge management? You know, the way I define knowledge management, if you're at a cocktail party, right, is uh, people go, "What the what the hell is that?" <laughs> <laughs> the way I would try to define it is that you. If you've got a community of practice of, you know, a thousand or 5,000 people, and they're all basically kind of doing the same job or similar jobs or related jobs, and they're spread all over the world. What you want to try to do with knowledge management is have them act as efficiently and effectively as if they all worked in the same building and maybe even on the same floor, and they could bump into each other at the candy shop and, you know, getting coffee I uh, can walk by each other's desks and talk to each other. They knew where the file cabinets were with the old materials from such and such, 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 and it was all really easy to get. 
So gaining that efficiency, gaining that quality of service delivery, and you know, getting people to people and people to content really as efficiently as possible if they're all crammed in one space as if they're all over the globe. Doing that through technology and people in process. I like that definition and I'll challenge a little bit and I'll ask for a stretch in the idea that this idea of co-location, right? That that has always been a thread of strength and trust and communication and off chance communication, which is just as golden as a purposeful communication. Like you say, a candy shop or whatever, you just happen to run into somebody. But in the remote world, how do you adopt that better? How do you how do you provide for that to happen? Remote and uh, globally dispersed, you know, I guess can be sort of interchangeable a little bit. So we've been dealing with the globally dispersed, which is just like remote here in our pandemic situation for years. And it's really the, you know, the technology that enables that, right? So, you know, before we, in the early days, we still had phones, basically. Now everything's through the computer and everybody's file sharing, very elaborate systems that we have today. So it's the technology, I think, that it, that increases that. The people-to-people connection, I think, is also made easier through technology, through the through computers and through teams and whatnot. So you can actually see people to, you know, face-to-face and you're not really calling on the phone, cold calling. And you can see who somebody is and a lot more detail about them and what their qualifications are and should I even call this person ahead of time rather than just, you know, hey, I got this buddy Edwin, he might know something, let me call him up. I can read your bio or I can have a, you know, a complete breakdown of the accounts that you've worked on and the experiences you've had and uh, make that you know, connection much more effective. So a lot of it's technology underneath that. And I think the culture has come a long way, especially, as you say, with the, uh, the younger people that are more yeah. grew up with social. Adapted to that behavior. Yep. Does AI come to play in this? Uh, just in your brief description of being able to research somebody and see their bio, see what they've produced, see output or context that could help you decide if you want to reach out to this individual in a cold call case. Is there AI behind any of that to help the user interface find faster, more detailed information? Um, I think we're just starting, you know, as an industry to just see that come in 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 dribs and drabs or experimental ways. From most things that I've seen, everything's still very search and taxonomy oriented, trying to focus you down onto the, the right stuff, if you will. Being able to have that sort of connection, if you will, from a taxonomy perspective, I think that's what people are relying on mostly these days. Well, thank you very much for your time today in sunny Cleveland. As we all know, when people think of the beach, they think Cleveland. The North Coast. (laughs) Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.